Hi, this is Greg Voison inviting you to listen to our latest Inside Personal Growth Podcast number 888 with Scott Miller about his new book entitled Master Mentors, 30 Transformative Insights from Our Greatest Minds. This podcast number 888 is brought to you by Stephanie Spence, author of a new book entitled Yoga Wisdom, Warrior Tales Inspiring You On and Off Your Mat. In my interview with Stephanie, she tells her personal story about abuse and how her prior life experience strengthened her to seek a path of peace and joy in her life. Stephanie says that people who see out yoga usually have some physical or emotional suffering and are looking for relief from yoga. If you want to learn more about Stephanie's new book, you can visit her website at www.stephaniespence.com. That's www.stephaniespence.com. You can also go to her blog where she's got wonderful articles on the benefits of yoga. And now for our featured podcast, please listen to my interview with Scott Miller about his new book, Master Mentors, 30 Transformative Insights from Our Greatest Minds. Happy listening. Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. Scott Miller uh, from Salt Lake City, Utah. He's a returning guest. He's been on our show, let's see, three or four times. And for all my listeners, you probably know him from his smiling face, from uh, Franklin Covey, um, from Management Messes. And the list goes on and on and on. But let me just tell you a few of the books that he has written. The new one we're going to be talking about is Master Mentors. uh, That just released September 7th. Uh, Marketing Messes, Brand Success was another one of the books he was on with. Management Messes to Leadership Success. And if you haven't figured out by now, Job Mess to Career Success, he's got a whole series of books that he's writing uh, in that genre, in that category. So Scott, welcome to you today. Uh, you don't need much introduction simply because you've been on the show many times. Um, and I think I'll forego the formal introduction and just get into it because this new book uh, comes from your leadership series and all the people that are, you've interviewed over, you know, eons and eons there. Um but it's called Master Mentors, 30 Transformative Insights from Our Greatest Minds. And in the introduction, you selected 30, and you easily, it's pretty tough to probably scan them all down to 30, uh, leadership guests that were on, uh, on your show, but Master Mentors. Um, can you tell us the story about selecting the 30 mentors and why it was so important in writing this book? Why did you like bring this book out now? Greg, thank you. And thanks, by the way, for the platform. Again, I appreciate the spotlight. So as your listeners and viewers might know, I am privileged to host what is the world's largest weekly leadership podcast now called On Leadership with Scott Miller. It's about 7 million leaders every Tuesday when it airs, audio and video. Some of the greatest minds in business and industry, celebrities, actors, some not so famous, but they've had some significant discoveries that we share. And so it's from this podcast where we had 175 episodes every week for nonstop three years that I felt, Greg, like there was so many insights that have been shared off air. Like, you know, what happens three minutes before we go live or what happens after we click, you know, the the video off and then they share something really fascinating off air. 
Yeah. Or perhaps it was, you know, in the elevator or something. So with their permission, I selected 30 of these 170 guests. By the way, there are 10 books in the series. So this is volume one. Volume two is just being finished. I'm starting volume three. So every year there'll be a new 30 coming out. Volume two hits next year. But this was really about me picking 30 people that I thought had something transformative to share about their own journey. Mm -hmm. The book is very episodic. One chapter is about brain health. The other is about gratitude. Another one is about, you know, your peak, your trough and your recovery. It's a very episodic book, fast, easy, breezy. I think it is going to pick up the mantle of chicken soup for your soul and be the next series like that. And so I'm delighted to be here today to talk about any of those you'd like to. Well, you have 30 profiled in there, and obviously it's hard to select who you want to talk about. But I was just watching the video uh, about Nick Viacek. I think Nick that's Vujic. how you say yes. yes. And, you know, I honestly I have to admit, I'd never seen him before. Huh. Um, but after I finished watching the 60 Minutes report, uh, yeah. a young man born with no legs, no arms, uh, literally an inspiration beyond belief. Uh, to see what he's accomplished in his life and how many people he's helped. Um, you know, can you relay his story a little bit? And what you, you kind of say is what was being required of him to evolve into what you call a master mentor. Um, he speaks to spiritual groups, religious groups, um, you know, kind of. And, and business groups, right? And Not business groups, well, yeah. Right? Yep. But again, this this is a someone who, no matter where they spoke, um, would make you think that your problems were nothing. <laughs> it's very true. It's a great setup. I'll try to keep this succinct. Nick Vujicic, as you mentioned, was born with no limbs, no arms, no legs. Like you and I, he has a, a head, a neck, a torso, and his body ends just beneath his groin. He's a very small foot-like appendage with a couple of kind of small toes on it that he can text with, but that's about it. No arms, no legs. Uh, Nick has written several books. He's sold millions of copies of these books. He's an inspiration to hundreds of millions of people because he tried to take his life early on. He felt like he was going to be a burden to his parents. He tried to kill himself as a child. He was unsuccessful. And he began to discover his mission, his purpose for spreading light, for spreading gratitude, not for what he didn't have, but for what he did have. And it seems like a cliche, but Nick was one of our early guest. I think he was guest number 100. We interviewed him as our 100th episode. And then you may know that every month, my wife and I, Stephanie, we live in Salt Lake City. We're fairly well known now for having these sort of monthly celebrity dinner parties where we fly in a, a, an ambassador or a governor or a, some celebrity rock star. We gather 15, 20 friends and we drink champagne and learn and listen to them. Nick came to my house one evening for one of these dinners and I didn't know him very well. We'd met once or twice. We became fast friends. And I was watching Nick sit across from me on a sofa in my living room. And Nick was scratching his head like a cat would scratch their head by like, you know, taking his forehead and scratching it on my sofa. Right. And I looked down and I had a glass of water in my hand and I was just drinking it unconsciously because I was thirsty. And then later in the evening, I was watching Nick at the dinner table, you know, kind of, you know, balance himself on his torso. He's no arms and no legs. He cannot drink alone. He cannot eat alone. He cannot dress alone. He cannot walk. He cannot save himself from a burning building. He cannot use the restroom alone. And I was eating a piece of key lime pie. I don't even remember picking the pie up. And I just, it dawned on me, Greg, that age 51, I didn't know what gratitude was. I didn't know how important it is to be able to scratch your head or adjust your glasses or get a drink of water or 
light a candle or any of the thousands of things we do a day unconsciously and, and reflexively. And for me, talking to Nick, listening to him build this amazing life, inspiring others to be grateful for what you have and kind of even ignore what you don't or just create some workarounds. And it, it, the big idea in the chapter, although it's titled Gratitude, is about living your life through the lens of I have to, I ought to, or I get to. And the story I share is, you know, living here in Salt Lake City, it's, you know, it's, it's winter half the year and typical Sunday evening in December, it'll be four degrees outside. It'll be nine o'clock. I'm ready to go to bed. And I realize I've got to take the garbage out and I'm like, and so I'm wrapping the garbage up, going down a flight of stairs out to a driveway that is iced over, slipping and sliding out to the garbage cans, my pajamas, where I realize finally that it's garbage day the next day. And I got to take three massive garbage cans down 70 yards to the street. And it's always been a huge burden until I met Nick Vujicic and I realized I have to take the garbage out. I ought to take the garbage out. I get to take the garbage out because Nick Vujicic cannot take the garbage out. So yeah. And the me, other thing, Scott, is you don't have to pick up the garbage. I don't have to pick up the <laughs> think, think that about the guy that's driving the truck. It's picking at, up your garbage. At seven in the morning where it's snowing and icing out. <laughs> exactly. You are exactly right. <laughs> and so for me, the transformational insight, and many of these are a duh, but you know, I think it was Voltaire that said common knowledge isn't common practice. That is to be grateful for everything we have and look through everything in life, whether it's a termination you're facing tomorrow whether it is a high courage conversation with your child or spouse or neighbor or mother-in-law paying one-tenth of your visa bill because you can't afford 10 tenths of your visa bill. I get to fire someone because they hate this job and they're not right for the job. I'm going to send them into a new phase of their life. I'm trying to make all of my interactions every day moving from I have to and I ought to, to I get to be on at two in the morning and deliver three keynotes to Dubai clients at two and three and four o'clock in the morning. I don't dread that. I get to do that. You get the point, but it's been transformative for me. Well, uh, any of my listeners now know who he is. Let's uh, get Scott's book. You can read about him. You can also go on the internet at Master Mentors. Uh, You can learn more about him most certainly by just typing in his name uh, and you'll see all kinds of videos. Now in in the chapter about Dave Hollis, you identified and ranked three competencies required from leaders. And I just did um, an interview with Jacob Morgan, the future leader. Uh, I had the guys on from Deloitte about their book Provoke uh, yesterday. And, you know, all of this is around leadership because we're seeing so many changes in the world and it's happening so fast. And um, leaders today, more than ever, need to have a new skill set. They need to adopt and adapt quickly, you know. And COVID wasn't the only thing that brought this on, although COVID exacerbated this issue. Can you let our listeners know what these three competencies are and why you believe they're so important because you're doing a whole podcast show on leaders. It's true. If I remember them correctly, they go something like this. I, I, I profess after three decades in the leadership industry as the chief marketing officer of the largest leadership company in the world, Franklin Covey, 
I've learned a few things. I think the number one role of a leader is not mission, vision, and values, and not systems, structures, and strategies. Those are important. You have to do them. I think it's to recruit and retain competent leaders. Mm -hmm. Recruit and retain. Because the whole world right now is looking for a job. The great resignation is like the complete resignation. Everybody has been released generally from their hostage situation the last 18 months. And people are now on the hunt to be valued, to be respected, to be engaged, to be fulfilled. And so your job is not just to recruit, but to retain. I think we spend too much time recruiting and not enough retaining, inoculating our key producers from your competition. Because if you don't think every one of your top producers right now is in deep conversations with your competition, you're a fool. Every one of them is in conversations with a recruiter right now and is being offered more money and better conditions and all the things that you weren't willing to have happen. Recruit and retain talent. I think the second role is to offer people feedback on their blind spots. This is the primary job of when somebody is in the role is to give them the gift of moving outside your comfort zone and discussing the undiscussables about their perhaps communication style or their punctuality, or maybe it's their personal hygiene. Maybe it's how they collaborate. Maybe they're the know-it-all, but they don't know that they're the know-it-all. Is giving this gift to people around their blind spots. We all have them, but as a leader, it's your job to have these high courage conversations where you balance courage with diplomacy and make sure people know what it's like to work with them. And then lastly, I think, you know, one of your competencies is vulnerability. Just like, you know, calculating EBITDA or cost of goods or inventory turns, you have to be vulnerable. You have to be able to own your mess, teach through your mess, speak about your successes and your failures openly, not gratuitously, not like a confessional, but to have the confidence and the humility to be able to make others comfortable discussing their challenges. When people are lying to you in the workplace, it says more about you than it does about them. It means you've not created a culture where people feel safe to own their mess because you as a leader have not owned yours. So you've said a lot and then kind of unpack it, really. Uh, The reality is everything you said are the skills and traits and personality as that leaders need to have today. And I would add to that, that a big dose of compassion and understanding and authenticity. Uh, You know, the, the worst thing you can do is um, uh, tell a lie. Okay. And the lies turn into things that uh, can really have whiplash uh, within you, you personally and the organization. And so I, Echo everything you said. I think it's perfect. Again, for my listeners, go pick up the book. You can read about that. Uh, you also can go. We'll we'll promote the um, the channel and the podcasts. And so, you know, in in the chapter about David Pink, you speak about or Daniel Daniel Pink yeah. concept yeah. called peak uh, through and recovery. What advice can you give us or the listeners about organizing their day in better alignment with their own rhythm and energy using the concept? Because, you know, every leader, it's about energy management. I just had Jim Lohr on here, right? And Dr. Jim Lohr is, for those, is the power of full engagement, sold millions of books. But, you know, his new book is interesting. It's about leadership. 
Okay. Um, what I would say is, what would you tell people about rhythm and energy and how they can help yeah. manage it? Yeah. So Daniel Pink, of course, right? Famous author, wrote the books uh, Drive and recently wrote a book called When, right. all about timing. And he, he popularized this concept of your circadian cycle, you know, understanding your peak, your trough, and your recovery. And I don't know how I made it to be 53 years old. I'd never heard this concept, but this idea is we all have a peak, a trough, and a recovery. And it made sense to me. Maybe I'd heard the concept, but I'd never applied it in my life. And after you know interviewing Dan Pink, which I've done now several times, he's a friend of mine, endorsed my books as well. I realized that my peak every day is about 4 a.m. to about 10 or 11 in the morning. I do my writing from about four to six. Sometimes it's five, but usually four o'clock. I write early, my ink column, my, my, my blogs, the books that I write, my best thinking, Greg, is done from 4 a.m. to about 10 or 11 in the morning. It's when my genius comes out. And then I just have a trough, an energy trough between like 11 and one or so, maybe it's two, where I don't go to sleep like, you know, a siesta, but I don't do my most critical thinking. And then I have a bit of a recovery from about one to five or so. And the big aha for me was to make sure I schedule my day deliberately around when am I at my best and avoid things when I'm not at my best because of my trough. I don't schedule meetings with the CFO to review my second quarter budget at noon. Well, you're doing pretty darn good if you're in a trough right now because it's noon. Well, my trough. (laughs) That's that's why I usually schedule my podcasts between 8 and 10 in the morning, but Drew scheduled this one at noon. But so you're doing darn good, Scott, if you're in a trough right now. Well, technically it's (laughs) 1.30 in Salt Lake City. I'm starting to come out. Okay, you're on the other other side of it. I'm coming on the other side. But you get the point, right? For me, there's a couple big ideas. One is to sit down and deliberately understand when is your peak, when is your trough, and when is your recovery, and schedule those most important activities when you're at your best and not at your worst. But also, it's to communicate that to your colleagues. Here's a good example. In the the book, I write a chapter about, I have a very competent director of uh, public relations. She works 12 hours a day, but she works like nine to like nine. Well, by nine o'clock, I'm five hours into my into my peak. And so she starts getting into hers like around noon or one or two. And then her recovery comes, you know, midday. So she starts sending me 15 emails. My day is done at four o'clock. My day, I've worked 12 hours. I'm done. So we had to get on the same page to recognize, you know, as the leader, she had to kind of align closer to my schedule, but I also had to align for hers as well. This is not a transformational insight for everyone. Like all 30 of them, they're going to hit you kind of where you are in your career, where you are in your role as spouse or parent or partner or widow or promoted or divorced or bankrupted or you you name it. This was profound for me because it made me more deliberately and intentionally schedule not just the things that I wanted to focus on, but when to focus on them. Well, sound advice, because everybody has a circadian rhythm and they just have to figure out where it is and when it is. I know what mine is and I know how it works. Um, And like you, um, I'm not my best probably after like five o'clock because I get up early. Okay. Um, You know, uh, we just had Jim Hewling on about the four disciplines of execution as a result of you. And Chris McChesney also wrote that book with him, uh, uh, along with um, 
um, Sean Covey. And they talk about execution. And you quoted him in saying that, you know, attaining wildly important goals, which, you know, most corporations teach this. I think 4 million people have been through it, including a quarter million employees at um, uh, yeah. Marriott. That's right. And the role of the leader in the business is really execution process is kind of critical. Can you speak with the listeners about these four disciplines? Because it's something that Covey teaches. It's part of yes. their course. Yeah. It's a Covey book. Uh, and maybe a little bit of research. And why your Chris as a leader or Jim or Scott were all great leaders in of themselves. The authors. Yeah, I think the big idea in the book, and the book, as you mentioned, is the best-selling book in the world around strategy execution. The big idea is there will always be more ideas than there is capacity to execute them. That leaders that execute do a couple of things that are consistent. They have a fierce focus and discipline to be able to say no to the good at the expense of the great. They are expert at goal setting. They understand that the organizational psychology is people generally cannot do more than one thing at a time with excellence, that you cannot delude yourself into thinking you can have eight or 10 wildly important goals. You're never going to get them accomplished. You cannot land more than one plane at a time. So they teach in the first discipline, if you will, this idea of setting wildly important goals. They call them WIGS, W-I-G-S, and the methodology is from X to Y by when. Every goal you set should have this goal-setting theory of from X to Y by when. It should have both lead and lag measures. A lot of goals only have lag measures, but you also have to have lead measures that are influenceable, that you actually can influence and change yeah, them. Yeah, exactly. The big idea I write about in the book is discipline too, which is this idea of create a compelling scoreboard. I think so many organizations have scoreboards, but they're in some comptroller's Excel spreadsheet in her laptop. And they're not seeing them. (laughs) And they're not seeing them. And nobody knows if you're winning or losing, except for the executive team every Friday, you know, at three o'clock when the chairman or whoever, you get the point. Scoreboards, which is the great insight in the book, need to be fun and visual and compelling. They should not be in Excel. They should not be in the comptroller's laptop or the sales vice president's laptop. They should be on the wall on a 40 page banner, or they should be in crayon or in, you know, paint. They should have, you know, fun engagement that you as the leader should not be creating them. Your team should be creating them, right? No involvement, no commitment that people should be able to tell in a moment's notice, are we winning against increasing customer retention from 48% to 49% by the end of next month? Exactly. And what's my role in it? And how often is this updated by the day, by the hour? It can be electronic. It can be digital on a wall. It can be just fun things with, thumb depressors and broomsticks or, you know, you name it, you name it, but your team needs to own the scoreboard and they need to rally around it. Probably with some regular cadence, talk about, are they winning? Are they losing? What can they change? But scoreboarding is all based on the fundamental idea that people want to win. Well, it makes it it also makes them accountable. Let's face it. One of those uh, four is accountability, right? Right. Um, I know because I teach this stuff as well. So the reality is, is getting it, but the scoreboard is the most important because that's what's visual. That's what people see. And that's what they'll work on and report on. Um, You know, uh, 
Daniel Amen and I are good friends. He's been on your show. Yeah, I I met him uh, through another author in Oregon, and we've done many podcasts together. And I know he's maybe one of your favorites, and you picked him out for this top 30. Um, And you speak about protecting your brain and the brain of those that you care about. Um, You know, brain. uh, Daniel always says the brain is always listening, right? That's, That's his newest book. Can you tell the listeners about... Daniel and teachings and share with us this Dr. Oz of the brain, because that's what he's kind of referred to. And, you know, just so everybody knows his studies started uh, with the average person, then went to the NFL, looking at uh, uh, people who were having brain injuries as a result of playing uh, football. Uh, And then on to the fact that many of them uh, committed suicide or had uh, such brain injuries. So they were trying to figure out what was going on. Um, so tell us a little bit about Daniel and what you gleaned from him as a leader. Well, you share in common a respect and a love for Daniel Amen, like you. He's a dear friend of mine, and I'm a raving fan. Of course, he is a board certified psychiatrist, brain imaging expert, a neuroscientist. He is the right. founder and owner of nine Amen clinics across the nation. Yep. Many of your uh, uh, podcast listeners and viewers know of him from the many books that he's written. Also, he's on PBS like every hour on the hour, helping PBS raise money as well. Daniel Amen is probably the first physician in my generation to talk about the importance of caring for the one organ that most of us don't treat or even be able to or can't see, and that is the brain. And that the big aha, I think, is that I don't think most people understand your brain is kind of like the consistency of tofu. It's like jello. Your brain is like jello. Yeah. And you've got this really sharp, pointy skull that's protecting it. That's kind of an oxymoron. And that we have got to be noticeably more intentional with how we care for our brain, how we protect our brain from energy. I have the I have the privilege of being the dad, the frustrating privilege of being the dad of three young sons that are seven, nine, and uh, 11. And we, I'm militant. I'm militant about helmets on anything with wheels. Yeah, of course. Hoverboard, bicycle, scooter, pogo stick. Electric bike. Anything. Anything. It goes in the garbage can if I catch you on it without a helmet. Because what Damon has inculcated, Damon has, Daniel Amen has inculcated in me is that there are so many people that are, you are in my age, older and younger. They've had three marriages. They've had three bankruptcies. They can't keep a job. They have an angry disposition. These aren't bad people. They probably, in many cases, have an untreated brain injury. They mm-hmm. fell out of the bunk bed when they were nine. They got you know knocked unconscious when they were 12 in a football game. They fell off a bike and they kind of shook it off. And, and their prefrontal, prefrontal cortex is on fire. And so the, just, the chapter is about... Not being the popular dad. In fact, when my book is published now, I'll lose all followers in Texas and Oklahoma because I vilify football. Um, My children do not play football. They play tennis. They snow ski with a helmet. They water ski. We mountain bike. But we do all these things like fully protected where there is very little, you know, hopefully brain injury. We bike on the trails. We ski on the trails. And I'm, I'm really intentional about set them up for success. We try to eat well. We, we eat food that is healthy for our brain. We're not, we're not militant on this topic, right? I mean, 
you know, they've had a Coke in their life and there's a bag of Cheetos in here, but generally we're eating fruits and vegetables and lean proteins and a balanced diet. We have a snack and, you know, M&Ms occasionally, but the chapter is episodic. It's like all of a sudden I go to brain health because I think it's so important. And Daniel has kind of been, as you quote the Dr. Oz of the brain, helping to really evangelize the need for us to become much more aware of how everything in our life and our body is driven not only by our heart, but by our brain. And we need yeah. to become much more careful with it. Well, and I think that listeners should know as well, if they haven't listened to a recent podcast of mine with Dr. Wes Ely from Vanderbilt, Every Deep Drawn Breath, that you know, when COVID came, uh, we stepped back 20 years in the ICU. And the reality is, is there is a protocol that should be being followed. And one of those protocols, as you were talking about, is our brain is connected by our spine. When our spine doesn't move, our brain atrophies, and then there's delirium. And all these post-COVID symptoms are a result of how they're actually being treated in the ICU today. Because we went and said, okay, let's incubate them. Let's, let's basically put them on um, benzo, benzo drugs, which really are the worst thing in the world they could do for the brain. The best thing that could happen, I'm saying to my listeners, but this is based on Vanderbilt, 21,000 people studied. Uh, if, if COVID came to your family, number one, you got to keep the family connection. That's the first thing they took away was that community. Second thing, and I think this is important to actually mention, is that you need to keep those people awake, not asleep, not in a coma, okay? And you need to, when you can, keep them moving, okay? And and this new protocol is now in 60% of the hospitals. So, you know, when you talk about post-COVID symptoms, delirium, you know, people are acting like they have uh, uh, Alzheimer's disease. It's a result of how they were treated, the drugs they were treated with, and the lack of movement when they were there. Um, sorry for getting off on that tangent, but I thought it was really important. I I learned from you, you know, in chapter about Bob Whitman, uh, you cited two stories about servant leadership. Um, and I was just talking with the future leader guy, uh, Jacob Miller and we, and I brought up, uh, the green leaf, um, school of philosophy and leadership, which is who are you serving? Are your people serving you or are you serving them? Can you read a little of, of his stories and what our listeners can take away from those stories? You know, we hear this term servant leadership a lot, and I don't know what the definition of it definitively is. We've all got a version of it. We have a version in our mind. Yeah. But, the, but I, what, what I chose to do for the book was to talk about it literally. Bob Whitman is the 22-year CEO and chairman of our company. He has, you know... By most estimates, significant personal wealth. He has, you know, graduated from Harvard. He's climbed the Matterhorn. He's done the Ironman and Kona 20 plus times. He's invited back every year. He's a typical high performing athlete, CEO, a man of impeccable character and integrity. We fight like father and son, right? But I love him and he loves me. I chose to share a story in the book about literally him serving because Bob has, uh, Bob has a chef. Bob has a grounds crew caretaker for his homes. He has a caretaker for his family. He's earned it. He's earned a lot of wealth in his life because he's worked very hard and he has um, a team around him personally. But what I share in the book, as you, as you referenced, is two stories where Bob literally served his team. One of them was an event we had in Chicago where it was a, a team meeting, several hundred people. The hotel fire alarm went off right before lunch. We moved 
150 people out to the parking lot, took a couple of hours for it to be resolved. And we were, you know, money was clicking, right? Then the clock was ticking on a you know, two-day conference with 150 people who'd flown in. And so across the street, I spied a pizza restaurant and I said, Bob, what do you think? And he said, let's go do it. We went and we put 150 people in a pizza restaurant. And what was interesting is while everyone sat down with like their forks and their knives ready to go, including all of the presidents and the vice presidents in the company, it was Bob Whitman, the chairman, the biggest shareholder in the company who was at the counter with me ordering pizzas, ordering appetizers, delivering mozzarella sticks, pouring root beer, running Parmesan and red pepper flakes out. (laughs) Because that's who he is. Yeah. I mean, literally, he was pouring root beer in the mugs of presidents and vice presidents, while as the chairman and CEO, who could have bought and sold the restaurant a thousand times over, not because he's falsely humble, not because it's just, it's just who he is. He's a servant leader. And so in the chapter, I take it a little far accurately by saying, you know what? Sometimes servant leadership is literally serving. I think, you know, people like that, no matter how, who it is, um, they see what needs to be done and they take action. That's and right, they do it. Why they're successful. And, it, and it's a man of action, right? And it, it's important what you just said, because none of that is beneath him. If you look at everybody, we all started from humble beginnings in most cases, unless we were brought up in a family where, you know, there was, a, it, we were multimillionaires or something. So, you know, I wanted to touch on this one, because in the chapter about Stephen Covey, you mentioned that no matter the circumstances, pulling the plug requires integrity. Um, what advice can you give to our listeners in deciding whether to move forward with full conviction, pause, stop, or pull the plug, whether it's a, it's an initiative or whether it's on something even more important like that, like, Hey, I, I made a wrong move. Yeah. (laughs) I can't prescribe the criteria you should go through on pulling the plug, but as you mentioned, what I can describe is recognizing that it's okay to pull the plug. The, 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 the master mentor is Stephen M. R. Covey, the oldest son of our co-founder, Stephen R. Covey. He wrote the book, The Speed of Trust. You ought to have him on sometime if you haven't. It's the most uh, seminal. I had, I had Greg Link on. Oh, you did? Yeah. So he's a co-author and partner. Yeah. <laughs> small world, isn't it, Greg? <laughs> yeah, it's um, very small. <laughs> yeah, I think most people thought that the insight I would share from Stephen M. R. Covey was around trust, right? The 13 behaviors of high trust leaders. Him, his book has sold two and a half million copies now, not too shabby, but I don't, I rewind 20 years when he was the president of our firm prior to Bob Whitman. And he pulled the plug on a very important, vital product launch. We were getting ready to launch a new leadership initiative. A dozen plus salespeople have sold hundreds of engagements to clients, and it wasn't ready. The product wasn't at the quality that the Franklin Covey company was known for. And Stephen M. R. Covey made a very bold, unpopular decision, cost people all kinds of money, but he had his eye set on the long term. He was thinking about our reputation, our brand, our client success, the referrals, the satisfaction. He was bold enough to be extraordinarily unpopular in the moment. I mean, people lost a lot of money. Consultants lost billable days. Salespeople lost commissions. Clients lost faith and commitment in the short term. But in the long term, he built the respect of me and countless 
hundreds of others for having the courage to say, is this the right thing for the long term? Mm-hmm. Is this right for our reputation, for our brand? Yeah, we could go get the three or four million dollars of business that's already been booked, but at the expense of 30 or 40 million? No way. Right. Very unpopular. The chapter, I hope, resonates with everyone who's facing a decision of your own, whether to double down, whether to quadruple down, whether to pause and say, what should we do? Whether to take perhaps the unprecedentedly unpopular position to pull the plug, not let the chits fall where they will, but just help, help pick up the pieces to say, I see something that others don't see. And this is my job as a leader is to look around corners, is to be a little bit of a clairvoyant, so to speak, and understand the short-term gain isn't worth the long-term risk. Read a McGrath, seeing around corners. Read a McGrath. Uh, so what I would say is that in adding to what you just said, uh, look, after you take all the analytics and the data on making a decision like that, you've listened to all the managers, you've listened to all the other executives, and you have to pull the plug or whatever it is decision you're going to make. Deep down inside, if you look at some of our greatest leaders, uh, the biggest guide they ever had is their intuition. And you really need to listen to the intuition. I bought, I wrote a book on it, Hacking the Gap, A Journey from Intuition to Innovation and Beyond. And um, it really does take you tapping into whatever you want to say, a higher power, to hear what that is, that voice. Be discerning. Make sure it's not your ego that's speaking, but make sure it's this higher voice that's speaking to you that you hear, whether you're auditory, kinesthetic, however it might be. Some people feel it and they get a gut feeling and they go, nope, I'm not going to do that. It's, it's the wrong thing to do. And I would just encourage my listeners, your listeners, whoever's listening to this, um, try and learn how to uh, cultivate the uh, ability to tap into that intuition. It isn't all about the numbers that come off of an Excel spreadsheet. It isn't all about what all the other managers say frequently. Um, Sometimes you have to tap into a higher source. So if you were to leave our listeners with one or two single points that you'd like to have them take away from this new book, um, what would it be and how can they integrate this advice into their daily work life. Because look, at the end, you've done hundreds of these interviews. I'm on almost 900. And the way I look at it is everybody wants to know, okay, guys, you've talked to me for 35 minutes so far. Tell me now what I can do today, now, tomorrow, right? Um, So I'm asking you that. What, What kind of advice would you give in that direction? You know, I may have mentioned this in our previous conversations, but of all of the wisdom I've gleaned from these 200 interviews from working with Dr. Stephen R. Covey for 15 years and all the greats in my career, I've been blessed to be listening to. It's this idea from Dr. Covey around understanding the difference between being efficient and being effective. It is by far the most profound insight that I've learned because I think there's a lot of leaders like me more like me than not. And that is what has made them so successful is their own productivity, their own efficiency. They just get stuff done. They're just, they're productive. They wake up early, they work hard, they check things off, they do the right things, but they get stuff done. And that it's that efficiency mindset that when people like me that are naturally efficient and productive, when they try to move that into our relationships, 
It creates havoc. You cannot be efficient with people. You can only be effective. This is a cliche, but it is true. Every company is now a technology company, and every company is now in the same business. They're in the relationship business, period. And so if you recognize that your ultimate competitive advantage in your business are the relationships amongst your employees and your colleagues and your funders and your advisors and your lenders and your clients and your suppliers, everything is about your relationships. So make sure that you're not moving what might be your strength, which is your efficiency, into your relationships. Dr. Covey said, with people, fast is slow and slow is fast. And it's a huge transformation for me because I'm a naturally efficient person. I like to check things off, get things done, move it along. I'm uncomfortable with silence. I like to always be in motion. And that's not how you build high trust, mutually beneficial relationships. Slow down with people. Well, I appreciate you slowing down to take this call for this podcast. And I think that the wisdom that you've imparted on my listeners is great. I'm going to direct all of my listeners to go to scottjeffreymiller.com. That's one place where you can learn about all of his books. Um, You also can go to um, onleadership.com, and that's where you see his show. All right. And it's more than just a podcast show because he's literally taping it and putting it out there. I am too, but not in the same way. He's in a studio. It's pretty well uh, You're in put a studio. together. I love your background. Oh, yeah. It's a, but it's nothing like what he's doing. And I, what I would say is seriously, uh, uh, Scott, you've been on three or four times now. And every time you bring such enthusiasm to the show, I appreciate that. And I appreciate you, all you're doing. And You've got more books coming out, so make sure that we get back in touch. And when these new books get out, we'll have you back on again. And we'll keep uh, getting them to our leaders who are out there listening. Appreciate you. Appreciate your time. Namaste to you. Enjoy the rest of your day. Greg, thank you. Thanks for your abundance mentality. uh, You are the model of what Dr. Covey called an abundant leader. Thank you again. Thank you.